Hey everybody, my name is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to the very first episode of Folk Stories. Folk Stories is a podcast about people. Every week, I'll talk to a person of interest, and we'll talk about how they got here, what they're up to, and why it is that they do the things that they do. In Folk Stories, we talk to people from all walks of life, from tech CEOs to Irish folk singers and film directors. Folk Stories is a platform to hear people's stories, learn their lessons, and explore what it's like to walk a day in their shoes. The reason I started this podcast is because I am someone who is intensely curious about technology, people, and the universe at large. Folk Stories is an exploration into one of those topics, though the other two, I'm sure, will inevitably come through in one form or another. Now, this show isn't about me. But if you do want to hear my story and learn more, you can find more details in the About section at folkstories.org, and the link is included in the show notes as well. Now, with that preamble out of the way, I'm really excited to introduce my very first guest and friend, Johan Liedgren. Johan is an award-winning film director, consultant, and investor, advisor, and CEO of over 15 ventures. His clients have included major brands like Amazon, Nike, and Warner Brothers. Born in Sweden, Johan studied philosophy in college, but put the degree on hold to be one of the first employees at Microsoft in its European headquarters in Paris. After eight years at Microsoft conducting corporate strategies and negotiations, Johan left the corporate gig to pursue consulting, startups, and filmmaking. I had the good fortune of working with Johan through my last team at Amazon, where we hired him on as a consultant. There, I found him to be a brilliant strategist, a massive storyteller, and an all-around decent human being. Johan uses a mix of Swedish peasant common sense and self-effacing humor to solve problems and put people at ease. Today, Johan is active as both a consultant and a filmmaker, and he's starting to shoot a new film in the eastern Washington states starting this September. So now, without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Johan Liebgen. Welcome to the show, Johan. Thank you. I was thinking of how to best introduce you. I was thinking, Johan, filmmaker, consultant, business owner, uh, troublemaker, and I, I wasn't really sure what the best title would be. How, and I'm wondering, like, how would you introduce yourself? That's a... That's a very good question. Um, hopefully I don't have to, and you would do that for me, and then pick one that's relevant for the situation that's been given. Um, it, it's, um, I like all of those. I think all of them would work. And mm -hmm. obviously it's a combination of all of it given you know, whatever the day is. Um, but it is a tricky one. Are, are you are, when you move into a space or getting introduced to new people? Are you a filmmaker with a business background, or are you a filmmaker that's trying to combine filmmaking and business, and storytelling, and a little bit of trickstery and troublemaking? Um, when I started leaving the corporate space for a to add a more artistic one, I always assumed that the two would sort of be a Venn diagram that was going to overlap. And I don't know if that was actually true or a good assumption. I feel like they are more and more today. Uh, they feed off each other, but I haven't found that 
perfect intersection where all of them come in and become one. And I, in retrospect, I think that might be a good thing and by design. There is a little bit of tension between the disciplines and the, um, and the, and the filmmaking and the business and the storytelling and the consulting versus not working too much and freelancing and artistic versus actually getting stuff done. I don't see myself as a starving artist, but on the other hand, I left a traditional corporate career for, for me, at least for good reasons. So that's something I want to uh, dive into, uh, because you have had such an interesting history of, well, coming from Sweden mm -hmm. and then uh, joining Microsoft mm -hmm. and then doing a whole string of uh, other gigs. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could give us a highlight reel of the, if you had to pick you know, the major events um, of your career, like how that looked like. And It's interesting, though, that's the major events depending on what the question is, right? So it's a context question, but so let me see if this makes sense. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, and but it was just I could not get a job, and my writing simply wasn't very good at all and not very eloquent. So uh, being a novelist, great, you know, writing the great American, or in my case, the great Swedish novel, was just not really in the works and get sucked into copywriting, which was then the first two circles in the Venn diagram sort of intersecting storytelling, but with a, obviously with a corporate sponsor and stakeholder. Um, so did that and then drifted into management consulting very, very early and um, at the same time ran uh, university uh, at the same time in a city that was about 40 minutes away from Stockholm, Sweden. I uh, did that for a year and a half, almost completed my university degree. I still owe them a essay, I think, to complete that. And at that point was so busy with brand strategy, regular strategy, acquisition strategy, um, that I didn't really feel a need to go back into the academic world at all. And it, it, that whole academic space also left me very impatient. Uh, although I was a big fan of the what was run under the practical philosophy department, which was aesthetics. So what is art? Why do we care? How does it work? What constitutes art, etc.? And very useful and very pun intended, very practical philosophy. Um, Microsoft was one of my first clients uh, that I had myself. It was 12 people out of the Scandinavian office, I believe, and then loved it. I suddenly found a group of people who wanted to do something that was more than making money. Um, it was clearly at that point an underdog play, which appealed to me and the storyteller in me. And uh, Worked with him as a consultant for about a year, got hired um, for another year, went to Paris, spent three years there building up their European headquarters with two other folks. Very early days still. So this is, half of this is pre-Windows. So in Paris, we would literally share offices with the Apple European headquarters and have the same elevator and we'll swap T-shirts. So I would wear the Apple T-shirts and they would wear my Microsoft t-shirts. Good trickstery early on. 
Um, and then they grew like gangbusters, did three years there, came to the U.S., got married, Swedish woman, and had two children, and then did another four years at the headquarters over here, cleaning it up, cleaning up distribution, pricing, contracts, some strategy issues. Um, so it was a lot of money and very boring and um, unsexy projects. So it was something that was severely broken, very unappealing to most other people, and was um, almost certain to get you into trouble with the upper management. I will get that gig uh, and run that department of, of Microsoft. And then after eight, nine years, um, said enough and um, <clears throat> got out, wanted to take a breather. First son was born and um, just happened to be at the very beginning of the dot-com era and then got seduced by that and always felt like I missed Woodstock. I'm too young for Woodstock and felt like this had some of the same qualities and also the same qualities that made me choose Microsoft back in the early days. It was small. People wanted to change the world. It was not really about the money, although that was a big part of it and a lot of what was written up the folks that I worked with for the most part wanted to do something new and build something um, very appealing to me I think I was part of all in all up till today about 15 16 17 startups as an investor as a CEO or part-time CEO or as a founder advisor etc have you noticed, um, well, first of all, when you mentioned uh, Microsoft as an underdog, you know, that's something that today, you know, it's very hard to imagine, um, especially after the whole antitrust, it seemed like Microsoft was course, taking over the world. Course. So that must have been an incredible time to have joined. Um, there's a lot I want to unpack from what you just said. And I want to start off with, you talked about how Microsoft hired you on as a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, how did, uh, you know, you're somebody that, um, you know, was still in college or hasn't finished your college degree and, like, get Microsoft Had to... very little experience. Yes. And how were you able to convince Microsoft to, you know, give you, take you seriously and hire you on? I don't have a good answer for that today. I think I did the same thing that I've always done is you figure out what it is you want to do. You walk in there and you tell them exactly that and why it makes sense. And then it either makes sense or it doesn't. <clears throat> and at that point, did you know anybody at Microsoft at the time? Did you just reach out to someone in there or how was this? No, I reached out. I said I was a big, I, I remember uh, waiting for a meeting for another client and reading a Newsweek article about this guy in Seattle called Bill Gates. And I looked it up and tracked them down in Stockholm. So that's how we got it. And they took the first meeting, and I don't think I ever left that office after that. <laughs> that was my only client after that. Yeah, I guess uh, the rest is history. Well, it is for Microsoft. I don't know if I have much history to be uh, noteworthy, but certainly Microsoft has been doing – well, they had their ups and downs, been doing pretty well. They still have a chance to be underdog, though, if they retell their story a bit, I think. Yeah, I mean, also definitely depending on what markets you're looking at and also the changes they've been doing. It's actually been quite a remarkable turnaround in the last yeah, couple of years. Yeah, agreed, agreed, exactly. And the story is changing in that, in that context. It's more complex now, though. It, it is. Um, 
And speaking of stories, like your story has, you know, changed quite a few times from consultant, from Microsoft to startups to uh, filmmaking. And I'm curious about filmmaking. Was this something that you've always wanted to do or is this something that developed? You mentioned you wanted to be a writer. So was filmmaking also part of this or how did it come about? No, that, I think that's exactly right. I, it came from writing. So I wrote... I was a was a writer for a television series that was very much like West Wing when West Wing came out. So Europe wanted a similar play. Um, and nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> Spent about a year, year and a half writing for it. And then when I saw it on television, I saw the opportunities lost on the screen and the things that I wasn't part of as a writer. And at that point, made a decision to myself and I promised to myself that the next thing I wrote I was going to direct myself but then felt I was too old and didn't have enough time to go to film school so you just roll up your sleeves and do it you start making films and you hire really good people you can learn from and you read everything you can read you see everything you can see and you start building your own way of making, of making film and what's important to you Do you remember your first film? That I saw. That you made and the process. And also the first film that you saw while we're at it. The first film that I did, I, I, I thematically, is, it probably has a bunch of what my existing films are. That one was very centered and focused on um, courtship. And if you think about the gray zone that happens in courtship and in dating, so if you're taking someone out that you want to date you go to a bar or to a restaurant and you know you get a chance to sort of see if you can figure this out you're not really like no one is making any commitments and that's the beauty of the american dating process if you will and i was always curious about that because it is in many ways it's specific to the u.s europe has its own gray zones but they're different than the u.s so in this particular story, it was a hypothetical story in that you had a hundred people that you could date and you had to make a choice and everyone or both parties had to make a choice and you either had to push a red button or a green button and if one of them pushed the red button, the deal would be off. If both pushed the green button, it would be on and then you're stuck with that. So an early but version of thing. Tinder. Kind of, but... but if you can, I can't remember which one Tinder is, but if you can only swipe a hundred times, that right. would be a good equivalent. But now you can swipe an unlimited amount of times, and that's where it, you know I wanted to challenge that notion or look at that notion and see what happens when it becomes binary and you're starting to run out of time, which you are. You just don't want to tell yourself that or it's a metaphor, yeah. right? It is a, very much so. So that was the first story. It was a short film. The second film was. Also, again, exploring relationships, and but more of a um, chamber drama, in the bedroom, sexual politics between men and women type of thing. Again, playing it out full in the bedroom. Again, a film that took place in, in one spot during one night. So and a traditional thespian chamber drama, if you will, but on film. So the second film was shot to look like and in many places were like one long take from the beginning till the end 
It's called How to Enter a Bedroom. Yeah, and that's, I believe that's also on your IMDb profile. Yeah, I'm sure it is. When, you, uh, when you're making these films, how does the idea for them start? Is it something that you've thought about for a while and then eventually you put on film? Or is it that you decide you want to make a film and then you come up with an idea? What is your process for this like? I don't think it starts with the notion of making a film. And we should go back and talk more about that because I feel like a lot of filmmaking unfortunately is built on that it's to me it's more i find something in the world that i see around me and i go that needs to a spotlight needs to be put on that and that needs to be explored in some specific johan way he said myopically but that's you know what i would do and then i'll extract that out look at it write it up and you don't always know where the story is going to take you but If you do know what the takeaway is or what the moral of the story is, I think you can always craft your way around it. And I think that's how I work. It's still very hard work to write and for me to try to write well. It's also um, a process you got to have respect for where you, unfortunately, you can't just muscle your way through it. It's, it's, it's maddening at times where going to sleep or having a nap is is more work done than just sitting there and pounding at your typewriter. Yeah, I can, I can I've had those moments where you know, it's late in the day and I realize like I'm not doing any good. Like I'm actually making exactly. opposite right. progress. Yes. And and so counterintuitively like the best thing I can do is just sleep. Nap. Which just goes nap against every a, instinct. Kind of. Um, it doesn't go against your bodily instincts. Except that one. Right, yes. which is a big one. It goes against your earnestness. It goes against your um, disciplines. And it goes against... It's also socially awkward to... You work at a company with 350,000 employees and open floor space. You don't see many people sleeping under their desk. I mean, they're smarter about it. They do what all smart people do is they close their door and they find some angle where people can't see them and they take their phone off the hook and you sleep super smart i'm all for it go for it napping is the is the secret weapon i uh, completely agree it's how i got through college and yep. shall continue <laughs> most of my life um so when you encounter i've been napping for most of this by the way oh yeah <laughs> You're, it's just sleep talking but yeah. this is good as long as we can you know get some good tidbits yeah, we're taking a short break here for a 10 minute nap yes. <laughs> and the good thing about audio is that if we can put that right back in and nobody will know the difference exactly so creative bottlenecks when you hit them you know mm -hmm. you mentioned napping as like one particular strategy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what um do you have any other means of um tackling um a roadblock well it related but sleeping and dreaming and i feel like you It's this interesting tug between earnestness and discipline and hard work and letting your subconscious go do its thing. And you can't really write without it, at least not the stuff that I do. So what I found works for me, and I suspect you'll find the same thing from other writers, is if you have a discipline of, say, you, you, you write from 10 a.m. every morning till 3 p.m. and then you do email. But if you do that... It feels like your subconscious knows it's on point at that point. 
So between 3 in the afternoon all the way till 10 a.m., it gets a chance to percolate on the stuff you worked on. But you have to kind of set it up so that your subconscious knows exactly what you're going after. And I think that's what the earnestness and the discipline and the hard work and rolling up your sleeves and sweating blood is, that's what that does. But you need both. You, it's just how it works, at least for me. So then when you're, what I, to back to your question, your specific question, creative bottlenecks, Another thing that I found works is you literally start writing out what exactly that bottleneck is. And if it's keywords on a piece of paper, I have white pieces of paper and Sharpies. It just doesn't matter, but that's my process. And I write it out and I go, here are the components that I'm trying to figure out a way to, to broker. I got these stakeholders. They seem contradictory. I can't make it work. And like all I would argue all good story is very much a Chinese puzzle. So you change one thing over here and it just ripples through. As a matter of fact, if it doesn't ripple through, it probably means you get a lot of fat in your story that should be cut out. So you do that and then you wake up the next morning and go like, oh, of course. It's that simple. I'm, I'm looking at it the wrong way. It's the wrong angle. It's like right here. And actually what that means, it solves these two other issues that I hadn't even thought about yet so i have a lot of respect for <clears throat> the the percolating that goes on at night or whatever your you know your theory on what that little dream weaver does you know at night i do think there's a lot of percolation going on mm-hmm. i had a friend in college who was a math major who whenever he got stuck on a problem he would take a nap and then he's part of the nap club exactly <laughs> and afterwards he would, he would just get it <laughs> yeah um and, yeah, it, it's surprisingly effective. But I think you're right. Like, you have to do also that work up front of, like, thinking of it Well, I do. I might not be as smart as yeah. other people who can just nap and then just crank it out. I just I don't have that in me. I'm, I'm very much – I need to spend the hours. I need to do the actual work. I need to write. Uh, thank God I don't do things that need to be historically accurate. So it's just my – it's just Johan's world. Um, but I don't know how that would work if I had if eighty percent of my work was research. Um, I don't think that's for me. I think I'm very much a, a fictional guy. Yeah, and you know I think you do great work in that area. And Thank so, you, and continue you. to do great work. Thank you. This might be a little bit of a segue, but you talked about dreams, and I mm-hmm. um, and I think I've heard that you keep a dream journal. I do, and that um, you're very diligent in recording your dreams. I'm wondering... It's like, that earnestness again. Yeah, that earnestness. Here we go. The Venn diagrams or the Venn circles are merging. Earnestness and your subconscious at night. I'm wondering, when did that chart? How did it chart? And why do you keep doing it? So, uh, living in Paris, and I did a lot of travels, a lot of cigarettes and coffee, which was basically my only diet at, at that point. Um, and I was getting worn down, but I was also starting to have reoccurring nightmares. And they weren't exactly the same, but they were thematically identical. And after two or three weeks of having the, almost the same narrative play out at night, and an unpleasant one, um, I decided I was going to try something and just drag it out into the open, drag it into daylight, and by writing it down in as much specific, specificity and detail and with as much honesty as I could muster. And the minute I did that, I bought a green notebook, which was my first dream book, 
and I start to write, page one, I start to write down the thing, the dream, from beginning till the very, very end, everything I could remember, I did the same thing the next day, and then the dream started to change. And that's when I went, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. And the more I wrote down, the more I remembered, and the more I remembered, the more vivid and more interesting the dreams went. Now, what's been interesting, so at this point, I'm almost at 2,000 recorded dreams. Um, I can't do math, but say that I was, you know, say that I've been doing it for 25 years or 27 years, something like that. So it's not every night, and it does. I don't think it has to be. I don't remember my dreams every night. But it's been a hugely important tool for me to understand the thematic work that the subconscious does. And just, I don't really need to do anything, but knowing about that and um, paying attention to it in my waking life is important to merge my waking life with my subconscious life, my writing with my napping, the the overt plot with the bigger story that plays out underneath that you would latch on to if you think that something is good versus when something is just another story told. Right. And when you take notes yep. on your dreams, I'm, how do you write them down? Do you write it in long-form narrative? Do you take do. jot notes? Do you draw pictures? Uh, I draw pictures if, if there is a weird object that would appear that I would never remember otherwise. But otherwise, yes, I do write them down as a narrative from beginning to end. One thing that's been interesting to see is um, if I ask you about your dreams last night, you can describe on a good day, you can describe those to me, but when I ask you what it means, they seem rather elusive. Um, when I went back after 10 years and went back to the first couple of dreams, they're very easy to decipher. And I've been thinking about that, is that the dreams that you have recently are harder to get your head around or your hands around and to wrestle down for meaning. But when you get some distance to it and perspective to it, they're extremely clear. They're it's like the dreams are screaming at you, Johan, you're doing this thing, don't do that, look at it this way instead. So I think there is a purpose with dreams to not be too preachy. Dreams aren't supposed to be that. They're supposed to peg up a narrative and paint the picture, and it, you are supposed to be struggling to project onto it yourself. You have to work for it. I think that's part of how dreams and, frankly, story has to work for you to engage with it. Otherwise, it's just preaching. The dreams could very well say, Kevin, stop doing this thing where you're, you know, being uncommittal to whatever, right? But that's not how no, dreams work. No, that could include very many things. <laughs> right, exactly. We'll go into but that the another time. Right, but the dreams, ex exactly. So your defenses would trigger. The beauty of dreams doing what they do is your defenses are kept down because you don't know that you're supposed to be threatened. You're just taking on this journey. And I think the same holds true for, for good story. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, like the Socratic method, where like you're not being told, but instead it's you're encouraged to ask questions and yeah. find out for yourself. Right. I'm wondering if you don't mind talking about it, like what you've been dreaming about recently, and <laughs> the thematic things. Um, I will save that for another podcast okay. how's that we'll do it we'll fair. do, a, we'll do, a, we'll do a deep dive on yeah. the on, on the once dreams. we got some distance on this right it's a 
that would be a rabbit hole in a in I think in a good way, but also would require a lot of time to do properly. I need to think about that one. Yeah. It's a really good question. That's fair. A, and and I do have the answer to it. I'm not trying to be coy about it. I do have that. Mm-hmm. Um but not not ready yeah. to chat that one through. Yeah. Understand. I might change my mind in ten minutes. Serve it. <laughs> Have some more coffee. Right. But we'll get there. I love if we good get questions. There. I'm I'm such a sucker for it. Me too. I want to go back to you. Um, you said when you started filmmaking, like you, you know, decided you didn't for many reasons. Like it wasn't good. Uh, it wasn't in a good time for you to go back to school. But you would just start doing this. Yep. What was the process like? Did you? What did you? What turned out? easier than you expected what was harder than you expected what were the unknowns that's a that's a really good question i i think it also you have it's not just filmmaking filmmaking i knew i wanted to make my own films and be the director and the writer of those films so clearly a, a controlling ambition for the projects i didn't go like i i would like to be a director of photography i'm gonna try to find other people's projects that I can do. Um, what I liked about my approach, it fitted me because I had full control. I didn't have to wait for other people. And I really liked that. So I'd go write something. I'd scramble up the money for it somehow. I'll pick the people I wanted to work with. Hopefully find really good ones I can keep working with afterwards, both on commercials and on narrative stuff. Um, so that part felt natural to me. I didn't need to work on that and to me, films are very much like startups in many ways. It's just a very compressed life cycle. So you start it and you end it within a year. It's like you start, a, you, you, you make the business, you come up with the idea, you make the business plan, you recruit all the people, you get all the money, you do your thing, you start building this product and this project and this product, you launch it, you sell it, and then you're out. But instead of doing that over five years or ten years, you have to do it in eight months and like fascinating I love this this is perfect patience is not my my biggest thing um, so another thing that was easy to me was to write for script as opposed to write novels so it's a very visual way of doing it and because I'm writing for me to direct what I write I'm writing for myself so I'd you know I'd do scripts and I remember writing for television was the same thing you'd send it down and go like we totally get this this is great we get it we can't wait to see what's going to happen next but this is not how the you know the script language works and I go like I really you know that's not of my concern change it if you have to but you get it right they go like oh yeah this is great so when you write for yourself you don't have those uh, standards or or things you gotta you gotta work towards as a matter of fact, you can make that into your advantage. So if you read my scripts carefully, each paragraph is basically, not always, but for the most part, is a cut in the edit. So you find the cadence of the film is built into the script. So when I stand there on set and you have a thousand questions coming at you every hour, you have this sort of um, gestalt of what you want to do and a cadence to it that you have in your body and then that's how you make sure everyone's on the same page and are making your film. So as much as I feel like I'm a pretty good team player, at the end of the day, the film needs to be one voice. It's not 16 people that's pulling in different directions. It's, it's one story that's getting told, and that's the story that the audience, I think, will trust. 
and that's the journey they will go on without knowing where it's going to lead. So when you have a vision, uh, mm -hmm. it's, you know, you're directing it, you've written a script, do you have a vision for how this is going to go? Do you ever have cases where like an actor or somebody else on the set has a different vision? And well, yeah, how do you resolve that? <clears throat> well, hopefully they will always have a slightly different one. And I don't think they will ever be, ex they, ca they can't be you. They're going to be themselves, and that's why you hire them in. Um, but that's your job. That's part of telling your story. You don't just pick random actors and then go, like, oh, well, I'm stuck with these guys. You pick the ones where there is something in their eyes, there's something the way they carry themselves, and there's some way that they talk about your script where you go, yes, not only is that spot on, it will, it's likely to take you to a place where there's even more potency to it. Right now, I'm sitting with a actor that I'm working with for my next film, and we work things through. We slug things through. We would take long walks and, you know, fight things out. And then after a day or so, I call her up and we're like, "Fuck! It's like you're right. Like I, like I know I was fighting, but you're supposed to fight it to make it yours. So it's, you, you find your process." Um, Surprising to me to continue answering that question, how much I liked working with actors. I think that mm. was my, I thought that that was going to be something I needed to overcome. Instead, it's been something that I, I absolutely love. What did you? Um, why did you think initially that it was something that you had to overcome, and what proved different? For the same reason you asked the question, you did, which is I thought that they were going to have their own idea for what to do, and that was something that needed to be fought turned out that was not the case. Pick the right ones to work with and they're, they're make it better. But you got to be careful. You got to really hire right. And I guess th that's a million dollar question right there is how do you find the right people? Um, uh, I, I actually do know the answer to that. <laughs> I think it sounds... Then you got a million dollars. It sounds incredibly <laughs> arrogant. And maybe it is, but I'm going to go there. Um, I've always felt like the hires that I've done, and it's not just actors, but also for the businesses that I built, I know almost the second they walk through the door, and this is why I know it sounds arrogant, but you also have to trust your instinct. If it is one voice, and that voice is complicated and rooted into processes in your subconscious, you have no no idea what's going on. You have no visibility. You have to trust that instinct. So when they walk through that door and you go, you hand them the, your script that you wrote and they get up on stage and they start saying things and you go like, I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen in this story that, oh, by the way, I wrote, I know exactly what's going to happen, but they are doing something that just makes that thing come alive. And they're often, I've noticed, they're often not the people you thought you were going to hire. So your script, your description in the script will go like, tall 45-year-old um, woman, and then there is this overweight, you know, whatever person that comes in the room that is short and is 12 years old, and, but they do something, honor that, because that's what your script actually needed. But you didn't see it till that person walked through the door. So I'm, I have a lot of respect for that casting process, but it also means you've got to have the balls to go... I know that's a great actor. I just don't think it's going to work, which is really hard to do. And the same thing with that director of photography or that editor, all the key roles that make or break your film. 
I, and I think that goes back to what you said in the beginning, which is just trusting your instinct. Yeah. Um, and I find, I think that can be a really hard thing to do. Um, Agreed. It's something that I've been personally like working on um, a lot. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, have you always been able to just trust your instinct or no. is this a process you've developed and how did you do that? Um, a lot of a lot of work on myself, a lot of writing down your dreams, a lot of therapy. Um, I don't think I came out of my childhood with a ton of confidence and certainly not the confidence needed to take on, successfully take on artistic endeavors. That, that was earned. You have to slug that through and do a lot of work on yourself and sometimes not always pretty work. Yeah, well, you do you work it. And, and then it pays off. And then it can pay off. I don't, I don't even know if there's any guarantees, but I don't know if you have a choice but to try. Right. Something that I've heard from a mutual friend of ours is that, uh, and something I've also observed, is that one of your superpowers, if you will, one of your qualities is that you are really... Do we get a cape after this? <laughs> <laughs> Capes are bad because you can get sucked into jet engines. That's what I learned from The Incredibles, but we'll find something. Got it, got it, got it. So something that I've also observed from working with you is that you're incredibly calm under pressure and you're very level-headed and in times when people would Maybe um, I'm just psychotic. <laughs> Maybe it's just clinical. Well, whatever it is, um, <laughs> keep it because it's working. You're like, well. Thank you. And, you know, I'm wondering for that process, um, how did you get to be like that? Thank you, first of all. That, I appreciate that. Um, I think it's the same thing. I don't think I'm psychotic. I don't think I fit the serial killer kind of thing. I don't look at you right now going like, hmm, I wonder what his arms taste like. It's just I don't – that's not yeah, – They're not very good. They're <laughs> right, not exactly very meaty. Right. So. <laughs> mm, the good Chianti. Mm. Um, but I, I agree. I, I think I've always had a good ability to – look at a situation for what it is without having emotions overtake that and be priority. And the few times I've seen myself in situations where people have been severely hurt, I have acted well, if that's a test or a testament to anything. So I know what to do, and I go do that, and then I sort of compartmentalize, hopefully in a constructive way, I said, okay, I can feel bad about this person or I can feel bad about what happened but that really has to wait till we stop the bleeding for example or we get the breathing to start again yeah I one story that really stands out to me when you say that is the pit bull story you told me and I wonder if you could humor me by telling it I worked at a sure um, yeah we'll and we'll together we'll figure out what the what the moral of the story is because I'm unclear about that but because um, it's not just about me. But yes, I was in early and I had one of those corner offices with glass windows. A few other people have arrived, one with a very small little puppy pit bull from some rescue center. And so I came in, I petted a little dog. It was terribly cute. I get in there, I see other people, a corner of my eye do it. And then one of the producers come in and the pit bull just somehow gets spooked, turns around and just locks jaws over her face. And there's blood everywhere. And at that point, I run out and follow 
the poor girl to get bit into the kitchen where she started taking a bunch of towels to her face to stop the bleeding. That's how I remember it anyway. Uh, everyone else in the room at that point was standing completely still and not doing anything. It was fascinating. That it was like it was like a weird bullet time kind of thing for all the wrong reasons. So I had to go up to the first person and go like, call 911. And next one, I says, you too, call 911. Because I was unclear if anyone was actually going to do anything. And at the same time, you have this blood everywhere. So then I do my thing. It's from military training. I had to do military um, service for a year and a half in Sweden. I tried to get out of it like everyone else, but I had to do it. And... Um, you know, made sure that she could breathe eventually and, you know, took off the little paper towels and um, it was gnarly. And the poor girl was going into shock, so the whole body is starting to and just sit there and just talk calmly. So the more you can keep that shock down, the better. And think fairly successfully. Do you the, other good news is, the other good news is it's, it's Seattle and we live in a white neighborhood. So, <laughs> you know, the rescue is there in like 45 seconds. As opposed to, you know, anywhere else in the world, basically. Right. Do you remember what you said? Um, I like. I don't know what I would say to someone who has just their face. I bit, think you no. just make it up. Yeah. You know, it's gonna be fine. It doesn't look too bad. You're gonna be fine. You're gonna survive it. I think that my gut says, and I've seen this from racing kids too, is when they get hurt, your your reptile brain is worried about very simple things like are you gonna be able to is this permanent so you have to go through those with I, that's my instinct anyways this is gonna work out they're gonna totally patch you up you get a girl that's 20 whatever you know two five years old who just lost her face to a dog you're obviously worried about what you're gonna look like. you have to talk about it. just say this gonna look be fine and you say anything you can without lying and you know they'll you do what you can. Obviously, it's not perfect. There's blood everywhere. I don't know if there's a perfect way of <laughs> no, handling that. No, I agree. That. I agree. You do what you can. But I think the, the key is, please, just do something. At least call 911. And don't just call 911 and cry. Tell them where you are. Tell them what's happened so they can send the right people. Like, do something. How did we get on to that topic? Well, we got on to that topic because I specifically asked <laughs> okay, you about right. that topic. So, All right, so what's the moral <laughs> of that story? Do something. I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. When you think back about it, do you think back about these moments? Or is it something that you know, you're in the moment, um, you make sure the proper things seem to get done, and then you move on? Like, how do you I process think, it? I think I move on. Mm -hmm. Again, my psychotic breath. <laughs> I, do, I think I actually do move on. That sounds terrible, but I think I do move on. And, by the way, the lady in question that got bit looks great today and is very healthy and it's all, it's all good. It yeah. did work out. So the things you told her, turned, you know, it all came Thank God, to yes. Pass. Right, exactly. Exactly. So something that I know you do a lot is that you have routines and you're very diligent about improving yourself and... And I'm wondering if you can walk us through, like, what your morning rituals or evening rituals or hmm. um, routines look like. Um, so without being too personal about it, uh, up at about 6.30 in the mornings, and that I would much rather get up at 7.30 if I could, but I have 
kids that need to get out and go to school and get fed before that and all of that good stuff. So you do what you have to do. Um, so the houses in the mornings is filled with kiddos. Get those out the door. I um, Either before that or right after that, I meditate for 20 minutes. It's traditional TM. I've done it since I was 20. Um, and TM is transcendental meditation? Yeah. And it was one of... Again, this is back in Sweden. So I tried to find one that was not too tainted with religion and flower petals and, you know, incense. And these guys were just, yep, here's how it, here's how it works. You sit there on that chair and, you know, took two classes or so, and they told you what your mantra was. And I've been using that since. It's probably time to get in there and tweak it or update it or whatever you do in TM, uh, like a little tune-up. Yeah, it's TM like getting tune your, up. I like, like that. It's a good, a good ring to yeah, yeah, oil change, like a meditational oil change, and um, and then I do either I walk with weights um, through one of the local parks, up and down the ravines of that, um, or I do yoga, which I discovered late in life, but it's lifesaver. Yoga is just very smart. Maybe add on a little bit of tai chi on top of that and you do all this in the morning like right before, and then so. right and then you know if i can i'll make sure that my meetings don't start at 8 30 but it's sort of 9 30 or 10 or whatever i mean we started at 10 today for exactly this reason and thank you for being flexible by the way <laughs> yeah of course uh anything <laughs> you know but look at me i'm in such great shape <laughs> you are you look like a dashing young man thank you all right that's enough okay. <laughs> um what else? Uh, so many things. Um, story, so, narrative. Story and narrative. Kids. And kids. I think, I mean, Coffee. all of those things probably belong together. Well, actually, you asked about routines. Let me, so, and then, depends on what I do. I sometimes work for companies. I sometimes work on my film. So, obviously, that depends. But usually, I go to work at that point, and I try not to work after five, because for the same reason I think you mentioned, which is uh, I'm just not very useful. And I do think a lot of times when you work, when you aren't thinking about what you're doing, you're actually doing more damage than you're doing good. And you need to be careful, especially if it is an artistic project and writing. you got to be really careful with that. So as much as I believe that it is a process where you have to be earnest, you have to take a step back from time to time. It's the equivalent of the napping, I think. And, um, yeah, you can't just muscle your way through it. You can't. Yeah. I think something I read on, maybe it was say your IMDb profile, um, at the very end of a very long paragraph, is something about um, Johan, someone who is trying to live a balanced life, like a balanced life. And, and, I'm wondering, I think that's true, though. Yeah, and I think right. it's true too. And I'm, but I'm also curious because I think balance means different things to different people. And what does a balanced life look like to you? Wow, that's a that's a really good question. I should have thought about that harder before I wrote it, or whoever wrote that blurb. <laughs> um, I. I think it goes back to what we started with is to make sure that you have inputs coming into your subconscious and to your 
conscious in a in a good way that it's a mixed it's sort of um, when you're eating it's got to be a mixed diet of things to nurture you properly not just cigarettes and coffee no and it clearly didn't work so you know i i did quit smoking and um coffee i'm not gonna quit i think coffee actually for people with our metabolism i think it's actually a good thing i had someone argue that the other day and i confirmation bias i took it to heart <laughs> so um yeah and then routine so what what what, what, what um i this is related, and I think this maybe this hits to the core of balance. I want to stay on the balance. It's a really hard question, and I like that. It's a really hard question to answer, for me at least. Um, one thing, so a couple of examples. I don't do email or too much work when I travel anymore, and that just took a lot of the um, wear and tear from travel out of the equation. It was now a chance to, like, read Sometimes read a bad magazine or sometimes read a good book or, you know, have a drink at the airport and instead of trying to slug through 400 emails, which was, you know, the usual, you know, old Johan kind of made a surprisingly huge difference. The other one is I don't check emails first thing in the morning or at night. I just simply don't anymore. Now, you know, you work with me, you know, that if something comes up, you just text me. I'm fine with it. And I know it's important. But it's not on me to, like, be on top of it. At 5, like, hey, if you ha didn't send me the email before 5 and probably 3.30 or 4 or whatever, you might not get a response. And that's fine. It doesn't really matter. I think that's the key word. Like, it doesn't – like, most of the stuff we are anxious about or worry about, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. Um, what matters is – why we're doing what we're doing. Actually, that's something we can get into. And when both you and I work for both small and very large corporations, and it becomes an interesting conversation. Um, why did we talk about that? Well, we talked about balance. And so, you know, why do we do thing, things we do? And I think that's yep. actually an excellent direction to go. Um, like when you, because, you know, you're at a point, you have a lot of, opportunities and projects that you could be involved in films yep. that you could be doing how do you decide what you spend your time on what matters to you and how do you come up with those decisions um i think there's more on the on the balance thing we'll get back to that in a yeah. second i feel like i lost my train of thought about halfway through but anyway um um what was the question so the and the question is how do you decide what you do with your time um I don't know if I have a good answer to that. Here's what I do know is I go, I get very itchy if I don't get to do my artistic projects. And I also know that I'm kind of like a recovering alcoholic in terms of getting my business fix. So I really mean that I, if I could, I still would not make films 100% of my time. I like building companies. I like solving those type of issues and the contingencies that come with business. I love that. And if I think that's partly why I've stayed away from Hollywood to uh, A, it doesn't suit my projects or my the stories I want to tell, but also it's all consuming. 
I want to have the freedom to go back and forth. And even if I made a, you know films, I could. That was the only thing I was able or had the ability to only make films. If I walk through this office and that door to that boardroom will be open, and I see the usual middle-aged dudes in there doing their thing and up on the whiteboard, I will probably walk past the door. Here's how you shoot this, right? And then back up again and peek in, and then say. Hey, fellas, um, by the, the thing on the whiteboard, if, if you don't mind, if you give me that marker and I'll start doing it, and then the April sun would come in through the window, and soon I would be there with a passionate speech about how they should really change this business. And on the way out, we'd be like, oh, by the way, and you and you and you were fired <laughs> <laughs> to fix it. It's just, it's a thing. I like, do I think I'm right? Not always. It's like, I'm not that arrogant, but. I do have the thing. I haven't found a problem, a good problem that I don't love and want to fix. Business. Yeah, business and film. And I think that, you know, that ties back to balance, you know? Yeah. Like th and that seems like that's the right balance for you is that you're not... That's you exactly it. Exactly. And that's where I was going with it. So that, you know, that balance gives me a chance to do that. Spend time with kiddos, which you get kiddos. You, you know eventually you start to appreciate it more and more and more and you realize that you're actually learning more from them probably than they are learning from you it's a very humbling to raise kids i think if you actually get in there and do it and um your spouse i happen to be you know very lucky in a good relationship right now and it's you know but it's also something that's fairly or relatively new to me and um exploring that giving that some time again all of this feeds the other stuff and it's not just being selfish about it but it's it's i think my curiosity is is genuine i i feel like there's a lot to be explored i don't think i've figured it all out and i certainly don't think we have figured out what our role is in all of this and what we can do so um, that That, to me, would be a good way to describe balance. Yeah. You know, a little bit of healthy, but not just, it's like, yeah, I do like my martini at night, and that's fine. Do I smoke? Not anymore, which is probably a good thing, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty... Uh, balanced. Uh, yeah, balanced. Balance. <laughs> I was trying to find another word, but balance Right, no, like, balance is such a good word. Yeah, uh, words well, are I hard. should put that on my IMDb page. <laughs> um, Before you mentioned, you know, storytelling, storytelling, yep. filmmaking, and narrative, and that's mm -hmm. definitely something I want to uh, talk to you about because yes. I know that, like storytelling, mm -hmm. um, you have a lot of opinions on it and what it can do, and I think it's really powerful. I think uh, one of the most poignant short stories I've ever heard. It was two sentences. Mm -hmm. um, I like to say Mark Twain or Woody Allen because Ernest Hemingway. You can attribute anything to them. Ernest Hemingway, I think it was. Ernest Hemingway. Right. Um, it was, um, you know, baby shoes for sale. New baby shoes. New baby shoes for sale, never worn. Yep. And yeah, it's just... Oh, maybe that's what it was. Exactly. Sorry. And right. it's such... Exactly. So, so short, it's like, So powerful. Right. So you look at these data points that that short story gave you, and that's all it says. Everything that makes that emotional, you made up. Yeah. From those that you filled out the space between the data points with your own projections. And you, basically, a big part of the story you built, 
which is why it is so powerful. So I think one of the things that has struck me with when I think about narrative structures and storytelling is there is only so much that the, and we can tell ourselves anything we want, but at the end of the day, a good story, you're really only serving up half of what is the final experience in the recipient. So you're kind of you're taking it this far and you're leaving em- enough room in your story. There is enough juxtapositions between the data points that you give that the person can come in and say, oh, this story is great. I project myself or my own dilemmas or my own stuff onto this journey, and then the journey takes off. And it's still highly personal. When we see a James Bond film and James Bond hangs out the window, you know, hanging on with his fingernails, you could stop the film and go like, okay, wait a minute. It's like, why is this, why is this exciting? We know it's James Bond. It's only a film. We know it's a stunt guy probably hanging there. We've seen 21 James Bond's film before that. He always survives. He always gets the girl. Why would we worry about this? Because we do that. We worry about it because it's not James Bond hanging from the window. It is you. And so at every single time, it's exciting. And then that story continues But if we knew how we would end, you can already play it out. So the story at the very end needs to be surprising. The the phrase that I use is that all endings need to be both inevitable, i.e. all the issues that were served up in the story needs to come together somehow at the end. But that's not enough. They have to come together at the end in a way that is surprising and recontextualizes the whole experience somehow, and that's how we grow up. So we go on to this journey, and then we look and go, oh, my God, right. I should have, oh, of course, wow. Um, and I think that if there is such a thing as good films versus bad films, and I think there are commercial films and there are films with higher ambition. Perhaps that's a better way to look at it. Films with a higher ambition, I think, take what I just said very seriously as opposed to a commercial film that all they want to do is is trigger certain responses and hence why most big commercial films become very formulaic and less surprising in that sense yeah action heroes explosions exactly. guns exactly and they stay within the genre and I think if you have more ambition part of what you can do is you, if you saw a film that really felt like a horror film till you saw the ending and you realized it was a love story you were like wow this is profound this is brilliant now I gotta go home and write that that's actually I think that's a good idea but it's, it's not, or the other way around um, yeah so I have a lot of respect for a story and then back to those circles that on a good day makes a Venn diagram um, I do feel like that na- the narrative structures also work for handling those business issues. So, and again, you know this from working with technology. We come into a project and, and people say, hey, we got this thing here. It's super shiny. It does this thing and it shoots, you know, laser beams and does, you know, measures this thing. And it's, it's, it's awesome. And you look at it and go, like, it's truly it's shiny. And then your job is not really to fix that. Maybe you can optimize some, but our job is to figure out what that thing is going to do. And that, to me, is a storytelling problem or a narrative challenge. Okay, so let's contextualize this. Let's give that 
thing, that project or that product or that invention, a problem that it can solve that is worthy of all, you know, and it, but it's never that easy. Now you have all the contingencies. Well, it's in this company, so it has to solve it in a certain way. And you have these other tech contingencies that needs to be woven in. And here we are again, back to pretty much the traditional Chinese narrative puzzle that with all these pieces that need to fit together and still be contingent in a constructive way. So it becomes a narrative thing. And, you, and at the end of the day, if you do it well, you go like, not only you say, no, that's not what this is. This thing is going to change this. Here is what this thing is going to do. Is it all of the solution? No, not at all. And that's where these other things come in from your company that's going to help build this. And together, it really goes for that. And that's a big problem. That's what we want to solve. And again, the April sun comes in through the window of the boardroom. <laughs> and you take off your shoe, you pound it on your podium, and you go, this is what we're going to do, people. And if you're lucky, they won't applaud only, but they'll actually start doing stuff. They will actually call 911 if they have to or do whatever. It's, like, it's just making people move as opposed to just go like, oh, that's pretty. Yeah. Like, Inspiring people with a vision. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of, and I think that's often becomes tough in a, in a corporate environment is to what extent is money the end goal and if it is like on a truly like you can't be cavalier when you think about that but if money is truly the end goal that's not a big problem it's a bunch of people who get richer or a bunch of people who get it's like that's not we don't get excited about that we want to do big things and if the big things that we talk about aren't honest everyone knows that human beings are really good they're really good bullshit detectors so you have how many people at a company like Amazon in Seattle? Well, yeah. Amazon in total is like 350,000 people. Yeah, then after ask Whole yourself Foods, like it's half a million. Half a million. Um, then ask yourself, if we stop payroll today, you and I, we just hit the red button. So, yeah. yeah but, we have you know, nugget buttons in Jeff's office. You know. Right, exactly. There is, exactly. There's like the equivalent of the nuke button that doesn't exist either at the presidential office or at the White House. Um, you hit the button and say, yeah, no one's getting paid because we're working on this big thing, right? Like, we want to change the world for the better somehow. So if people are motivated by that, they don't really need much money to go do that. We'll give the money to someone that needs it instead. Like, I wonder how many will show up in the morning. Probably zero or two. Or I mean, it's like the two confused people that didn't get the memo. Um, but I think that's, you think about that and go, okay, wait a minute. Even if you cut payroll by 20%, would they come to work or would they just pick another gig? Okay, now we need to talk again about what is that big thing that we're working on. You go to a startup that's going to take on healthcare or it's going to take on, you know, build a product that's going to reduce the noise in our digital world. Half of those companies are on deferred salary. That doesn't seem to be an issue. So is there something else driving? So how do you in bigger corporations regain that sense of purpose and direction and then in a weird way that takes us full circle to why I joined Microsoft in the first place at that point. It was about taking on IBM. It was about taking on the whole paradigm of mainframes 
and bringing the power to the people's own desktops. It sounds absurd today, but that's what it was. And it was such a kind Main of vision at the bad, time. And it was like, that was just, that was centralized power. That was 1984. I mean, like, literally, Apple did, there was other reasons why they did it the way they did it. But the famous Ridley Scott ad, 1984, for, for when the Macintosh was launched, that really captured that thing. And it's, today, it seems like a trope. But when I remember when that shit came out, it was just like, wow, like, this is cool. Microsoft was just getting big enough, and Apple just slotted in there for. Um, and then we forget that too. It's like Apple is now bigger than. Uh, I mean, I was there when. Um, worked on some deals where Apple was literally, I think, forty-two million dollars from going bankrupt. They had thirty days runway, and we did some deals with Apple to make sure that there was still competition in the marketplace. <laughs> and there were discussions about buying it, which I don't think would have been a good thing for anyone, and, and certainly not from consumers. But it, it's interesting with how quickly the story gets recontextualized as we move forward. Yeah. Stories, um, stories change. Stories get built. Stories get retold, yep. get rewritten. And I think on this note, it's a good point of... Um, Moving on to the next phase of this particular story, mm-hmm. uh, which is, um, I have a set of closing questions I like to Uh-oh, close the here, conversation You with. save the hard ones for last. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Uh, hit me. I, I think Let's we've gotten it. some Let's pretty hard ones in right. the interview. Good, we have. So the first one I have is, um, what is something that inspires you? This could be something recent or something old. It could be a person, a book, a phrase, somebody you know. But what's something that the, the, the things that come to mind um, right now is I've been starting to watch, m- and it sounds random, but I'm starting to watch more stand-up comedy. Um, and I find it interesting, how, A, how quickly you decide if this is going to be good or not. Like, they literally walk onto stage and you're like, yeah, that's just too self-conscious or this just... And there's people where you just, you're with them from the very beginning. I'm fascinated about the narrative of comedy, the improv within stand-up comedy and the, how that works. So improv and narrative, is a, to me, is a fascinating topic. That's one. There are films that I see today, some new, some old, that blows my mind. Um, I re-watched I'm Not There anymore the other night, uh, Todd Haynes' film about Bob Dylan. Absolutely spectacular what a master class to me what a master class in in a particular form of filmmaking um i'm i'm in terms of reading i haven't i'm not a i'm very very slow reader so i have to be careful what i pick george saunders and his short stories have been hugely inspiring to me lately and i feel like i just i get back into reading thanks to him any particular short stories that's in that um, what was interesting to read was, yeah, um, the Braindead Megaphone is the book. Um, it has stories in it. I think some of them were written for either Vanity Fair or GQ or The New Yorker. I can't remember. He's been on commission by all of those guys, uh, I believe. Um, one was the actual story, the Braindead Megaphone, which is very uh, allegorical, um, hypothetical story 
um, that applies to the world, we, the political world we're living in right now, but it was written at, I think, 2001 or 2002, and it reads like ripped from the headlines today. Fascinating. The other one is, I think, his empathy and his <clears throat> diligence in hanging with people in situations. So he would, here's a New York scrawny, bespeckled, almost hairless dude, uh, flamingly liberal, um, what looks like a snowflake kind of guy who, and also is a writer for the New Yorker. It's like, you got all the warnings. He goes to Arizona and he really wants to hang with the Minutemen. And those are the people that volunteer to patrol the borders. So he hangs with these guys and they're absolute klutzes. But he kind of hangs in there. He goes to dinner with them. He gets to know them really well. He asks questions. And as he goes, there is a certain respect that is built by him for these guys. And they still, like, they literally, they get in. And then he goes on these night ventures sometimes with them. And he's horrified at all the weapons they have. And even more horrified when I realized that for the most part, they're actually lost and they get mm. stuck in ditches and stuff. Mm. And there is one point where they go, they are hoping to capture illegal immigrants to help them figure out where they're going. It's just fascinating. But he also say, hey, I'm in arguments with these guys, like I am in New York with my liberal friends. And he provides a, you know, an, a, a data point or, you know, and the discussion with the Minutemen would literally stop. And they were like, very interesting. Now I changed my mind and my position on this, and they would do that. They would flip, and he'd go like, that is unheard of amongst my own friends in the liberal circus. So he's fascinated by the fact that he can't quite put his finger on what's going on with these guys. And they're lovable. They're just kind of bumbling klutzes. And, and you know, for the most part, I suspect, uh, working on some very fucked up notions. But I love how he just dove into it. I think empathy is something that we can always use more of, yep. especially nowadays. Yep. Um, and also, all the titles and um, things you have referenced will also be included in the show notes so that people can follow them up afterwards. Um, my next question is, what is something that people might not know about you? This could be an unusual habit, something... Um, that you do that you know most other people would not do or um i ride motorcycles and i love it it's a it's a, it's something i discovered very very late, like two years ago i'm old so it's like two years ago and um i did not grow up with it it doesn't really fit my lifestyle or you know the stereotype of what i do and who i am and I always feel like it's almost like a, you get a really, really bad haircut and you just want to put a hat on. When I pull up on my motorcycles to, you know, a gig or an event or my help, I feel like it's something that's outside of who I am. Um, I don't feel the need to broker it for anyone else, but it's it's an interesting one. And I feel like I'm doing something that my type of guy, if there is such a thing, wouldn't really be doing. But I love it. 
and I'm not stopping, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you're not stopping. You're not stopping. I <laughs> no, I got my helmet right here. I'm looking at it right yeah. now. And so you're not I'm stopping <laughs> on the motorcycle, right? <laughs> no, not stopping. On the, I'm probably going to get more, actually. That's fantastic. Um, the next question is, is there a principle or idea or belief that you live by? Um, it doesn't, it can, this can be either small or big. I think honesty would help. Um, and because to the extent that you can't, I, it, I don't want to be flippant by using that word, but I do think if you try to manage your way through situations with a retained sense of honesty, you stay clear of a lot of stuff that would get you and other people around you in trouble otherwise. And if you do that, people will know. It's just, again, people are brilliant bullshit detectors. They they already know. When you figure it out, they already knew you were... That wasn't entirely true. So honesty um, will also help you work on yourself. Yeah. Um, and it's just much easier. I have hard enough time keeping track of things as yeah. there are versus totally. what I can make them add to And me. I think the other thing is... and. It, comes from having had to broker a bunch of relationships in the in the past is figure out what your role in a situation is as opposed to what you can do to change others you re i mean my take is you a you should never assume that you can and b it's it's futile don't do it and instead make your own choices based on what it is you have it doesn't mean you can you can love someone for what they are and still hope that they change to work out their issues but you really do got to look at it and not hope that if this person changes that way everything is going to be fine that's a terrible terrible approach i think and instead go given this now i have a choice to make and now it's on you the good news about that is it's on you you actually have control over what happens next and you're not going to end up being resentful and bitter um, before you actually have to be resentful and bitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's an there's a age for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know what that age is, but I hope it's three or four digits long. <laughs> yeah. And I completely agree. At the end of the day, you know, you're the only person you can control. And Yeah, exactly. And then go work on it. And then it's like, whoa, now I have to be both honest and it's actually about what I do. Well, now it starts to sound like you're doing good work. Meditation and yoga. Meditation and yoga. So uh, let's say that people have listened to this and you know, they're, they want to uh, follow you, find your work. Where can people get in touch or just uh, follow up with what you're up to? That's a good question. Um, I, my site, so lidgren.com l-i-e-d-g-r-e-n.com would be a good introduction I think to some of the trailers that I've done and um, and then if I come up with more we'll, we'll put it in I'll send them to you so you can put it into the to the bottom of this somewhere where the, where the links are okay I don't have a good answer for that Sounds good. Well, whatever we come up with, um, we'll include that it in the show notes. That would be a good answer. And, exactly. And as a charge, you know, we have the Liedgren website. That we do. We do. And my very last question, mm-hmm. this is open. It's a catch-all. Is there anything that I should have asked you or anything you would like to talk to my audience about now? This could be an upcoming film. This could be something you're thinking about. This could just be a general message. I am working on another film to be shot here in eastern Washington State um, in two and a half weeks. I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, it's going to take a while. 
there are two feature films that I have before that that I would love for people to go see, and you can find those from my last name, Mother Nature and the very private work of Sister Kay. Um, but no, I think the, the question for us, and turning this back, is um, let's do one more of these. Let's find some other topics uh, and maybe take that topic about that you asked that I so um, brutally dodged, which is, so what are the thematic parts of your dreams, for example? And let's, let's dig in. Let's do that. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I would love that. Um, but until then, you know, this has been fantastic. Thank you for sitting down with me, Johan. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again. And just a few more things before you go. First of all, thank you all for listening to the very first episode of Folk Stories. I really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you did, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps me reach as many people as possible. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast player or via the RSS feed. If you have suggestions, feedback, or nominations for people you want to hear on the show, you can reach out at feedback at folkstories.org, and the email is included in the show notes. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and have a fantastic week.